Well, the, these words that we've just read from the third chapter of Amos bring us to uh, what we might say is the conclusion of the first section of the prophecy of Amos. I say that because there is a, uh, a literary uh, uh, note here that kind of brings us to to consider that perhaps this third chapter is indeed the, the, end, the ending of this first section. What I'm referring to is that on, in the second verse of Amos chapter 1, we read that uh, the Lord is going to shout. He is going to roar from Zion. And there, if you look at chapter 3, verse 8, although we won't consider it uh, so far as verse 8 this evening, we, hear, we read that the lion has roared. That, so the opening part, whatever is contained between the opening part and this chapter 3, kind of makes up uh, a section. And the purpose of Amos' message is unmistakable. His message is, fr to be frank with you, um, troubling and perhaps even unpopular, but his message and his purpose is unmistakable. He is reminding the people of Israel that whatever they think, whoever they think God is, that it's not their perceptions that define who God is. And we do need that message preached to us in our own day and age. We live in a, in a time, especially in prosperous uh, contexts like uh, I would argue England, Britain is, we live in a time where we kind of want to define what God is, who God is. And, and this brings us to complacency. And Amos speaks clearly that whatever you think God is, O Israelites, whoever you think he is, those perceptions of yours do not define God. And that is a devastating message in a society and in a culture that has become so full of themselves so complacent in their spirituality. It is a devastating message to see it unfold before our eyes because we too live in a society that is prosperous and that is so adept at forming wrong notions about God. We love to make our own God. And it's not just the secular society out there. We justify ourselves as Christians and justify our our. our wanderings by, by twisting ever so slightly the word of God, by twisting ever so slightly the, the character, the holy character of God and his righteous and just demands upon our lives. We hear it. And it's not just the atheists, or the, not the atheists, but not just the secular religious people out there that say, oh, my God doesn't believe that. I don't believe that my God acts like that. My God, my, my divinity. My, the, my God is not like that. We hear that, and it's not just out there. We hear that in our own context. And they go on to describe God in their own particular fashion, a God that lays very little in the way of, of demands upon them, a God that uh, doesn't uh, demand us to, to, of anything, but in fact it is a God that shapes it himself into our own particular uh, likings. It's a God that looks much more like a, a, a far away kind of uncle. You, probably most of us have had that kind of uncle that lives very far away 
in Portugal, it's not so much the uncles, it's the godfathers. You know, in Roman Catholic circles, when the baby goes to be baptized, uh, you have a godfather. And usually that person is far away, but whenever he comes for a visit, for a family reunion or something, you can always uh, almost be certain that uh, at some point after the dinner, he's gonna give you a, a five pound, 10 pound note. And you're so happy that he came in and he gives me something. But that's the view that we have of God. He's a far and distant God. And whenever he shows up, once a year, Santa Claus kind of, God only shows up to give us good things. He is far and distant, but when he appears, he is only to give thanks to, to his people, but never to make demands. But that's the problem. Our problem today is the same problem that the people of Israel had. I've called it, and bear this in mind because I'm going to refer to this, uh, to this uh, throughout the sermon. I've called it Northern Kingdom Theology. The northern kingdom had this kind of theology about God. A God that makes no demands upon them. They can live however they want. And it is a God that is really there to, to soothe them and to make them happy. That's what they had. They had the wrong, Bible, uh, wrong view of God. But here in, in comes Amos telling them that the God that is their God the God with whom they have a covenant is so much different from their perceptions. They think one way, but God doesn't shape and fashion himself to the way that they think. And for me, I've been thinking a, a little bit throughout this, the last few weeks, what is the purpose of us going through Acts? One of them is that. One of them is, is this idea that we need to have a biblical view of who God is. A biblical understanding that revealed from scripture of who God really is. Because we too can have faulty notions about God. That's precisely what Amos, Amos is asking here of the Israelites. And that's why he starts here in chapter three saying here, listen, understand, think about what I'm going to say. And today we will consider the beginning of this chapter, chapter 3. And in order for us to understand chapter 3, I need to make a little bit of a, a, a contextualization here. Because this chapter may seem foreign to us, an alien. And it is. Because we're so distant from the time and the place where this took place that we read this and we don't really understand what is going on in the background. Amos lived... Thousands of years ago, in a different land, far and far away. But if you were someone living in Amos's day in Mesopotamia, you would completely understand what God is, is here saying. What God is here doing is bringing what is called a covenant lawsuit. The whole of chapter 3 is a covenant lawsuit. A covenant was, was an agreement between two parties in the Old Testament days, usually between two uh, sovereigns between two rulers of two nations then they would make a covenant between themselves and there usually would be a suzerain a an overlord and there would be a vassal a, a, a stronger party and a, a weaker party and the covenant would would have um, demands and would have uh, blessings bestowed upon fulfillment of those demands 
And that's what we have in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is covenantal. God made a covenant there, back there in Genesis 15, if I'm not mistaken, with Abraham. He promised him multiple things, but he also required of him obedience. That covenant is then re-ratified re uh, in, the, in the Exodus, there in the book of Deuteronomy, as God uh, inscripturates his law. And he makes promises of blessings and promises of curses, blessings upon obedience and curses upon disobedience. That's what's happening here. The people have been disobedient, as we've read in chapter 1 and 2 uh, now. And now God is bringing a covenantal lawsuit. We won't look at the whole of it, but just bear this in mind for today and for the, the next uh, few uh, couple of weeks as we go through this. This evening we'll consider just the two first verses. And the two first verses have enough in them uh, for us to consider and we'll stay here. So today we're gonna do slightly different than usual. We will first consider this passage exegetically. We'll first consider this passage in its context, make some application here and there, but in its context. Secondly, we'll look at some of the doctrinal lessons, some of the instruction that this passage has for us. And thirdly, we'll, I'll draw some applications for our own selves. So firstly, the exegesis. And seeing that this passage is so small, let me read it to you again. Verse 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, it doesn't start very well, does it? The word there for, in, for, for against in verse one is a word that can equally be translated as about. It is a word that can equally be translated as about. Hear this word the Lord has spoken about you, O children of Israel, about the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. If you translate it as about, which is very fair, and I'm not saying it's wrongly translated as against, in the context it's clear that it's uh, a judgmental uh, uh, prophecy, so against is a, a correct translation as well. But if you translate it as about, you can see something about what Amos is trying to do here. He's coming to the people. He's saying, hear this word that the Lord has spoken about you. And immediately the people will, will be interested. Okay, what is it that the Lord has spoken about us? Let's hear what, the, what God has to say about us. And he says something interesting. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. So far, so good. We like that kind of message. They're looking at one another and saying, that, yes, that's good. But then it comes to the therefore. Because I have known you, because you have enjoyed all these privileges, therefore, because of all that you have enjoyed, therefore, your judgment is coming. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And suddenly, all the smile and all the, the goodwill that Amos, is, uh, Amos had in, uh, in preaching this message goes away. And two points that we need to consider here as we go through this, these two verses. Number one is privileges, and the, other one is, the, the second is punishment. Privileges. 
the people of Israel, they were privileged. They had received blessings upon blessings. First of all, they were adopted. Look at the language there. The children of Israel, they are the family of God. They were adopted into the family of God. God had brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus through Moses, and he, he had made them their own family, or he, they, they were their own, his own family. They were his. God knows him as his own family, knows them as their own family. He adopted them. The second word that we consider as we consider the privileges is redemption. They were redeemed. Not only were they adopted, they were redeemed. They were brought out of the land of Egypt. They brought, were brought up from the land of Egypt. They couldn't do it by themselves. So God had to intervene in history and take them out of the slavery that they were in Egypt. He stepped in to rescue them. He stepped in to restore them. He stepped in to take them from the, the house of bondage to bring them to the land that flows with milk and honey where they are right now. A third word that we can consider in the privileges that they enjoy is election. That very controversial word these days in some circles. But they were elected. They were chosen by God. The blessings that they received, they received because they were a peculiar people, a particular people that God had chosen. God had, came, uh, had come to Abraham, and he said that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And in his descendants, through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. They had been chosen. And this is emphasized time and time again throughout the Old Testament that God had chosen Israel. And here when I say Israel, I mean both the northern and the southern kingdom, both Judah and what is now the northern kingdom Israel. The, the whole family that descended from, from Jacob, they were chosen. In Deuteronomy, God says that I chose you not because you were the greatest, but because you were the least. I set my love upon you, not because you deserved it, but because I loved you from the beginning. And we cannot understand this fully. It is the mystery of God's eternal decree. It is the mystery of God's eternal counsels before time began. But there is a, yet a fourth word for us to consider as we consider the privileges here outlined in just this first verse. It is the word communion. It is implied here that they had communion. You only have I known. And I know I'm speaking to people who have considered uh, the, the, the depth of meaning that comes from the, wor the word to know. It's not just uh, simple head knowledge in the Old Testament and in the New actually as well. When the Bible says that so-and-so knew someone, it means intimate relationship. It means full communion. And that's what it says here, that the Israelites enjoyed the knowledge of God and God knowing them. So Amos cries out to these people, to these adopted, redeemed, elected, loved in fellowship with their heavenly father people and calls them out for their sin. Now I don't need to make a huge leap here to point out that we too, are that kind of people. We too have been adopted. We too have been redeemed. We too have been uh, 
elected and have communion. Have we not as the people of God? This is a description of what it means to be a part of the people of God, and we are that people. Think about it. If you are in Christ today, you have been elected. You have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians says, we have been adopted into God's family. Romans 8, we have been given the spirit of adoption, not of, of, of fear. We have been redeemed, Peter says, not with corruptible things like silver and gold. We, we couldn't redeem ourselves, but God came in and redeemed us through the blood of his son. We have been elected, adopted, redeemed, and we have been given communion with him. Now, not just from, uh, in this outward way as the Israelites in the Old Testament, but we have his spirit dwelling in us, at home, in our hearts. We too are privileged. And that is a great thing. And it should cause our hearts to rejoice and to leap for joy. That's the source of the joy of salvation. That we did not deserve it. And we have been given everything. We did not deserve anything and we have been given everything. But then we come to the punishment. To something that we need to consider. Punishment. In light of all these things, the end there of verse 2 says, Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. All those privileges that the people of Israel had were in, in, in fact the very ground for which their punishment was coming. That's the irony of it all. That's the wonder of this passage that we have been given, that they were given so many privileges. But now, to whom much is given, much is required. Not my words, the words of our Lord. And the reality is that God does not tolerate, the Heavenly Father does not tolerate spoiled children. They were acting like spoiled children. And he is a too loving of a Heavenly Father to tolerate that. He will not allow his people to be spoiled. He loves them too much to let them grow in this way. And precisely because they were elected, precisely because they were predestined, precisely because they were adopted into the family of God, precisely because they were chosen and had fellowship with God, precisely because of that, now punishment was coming. That is the, the, the nature of the Old Testament uh, doctrine of election. And as we'll see, the nature of the doctrine of election in the New Testament as well. That Moses, when he was giving out the law in Deuteronomy, he was quite clear. Well, God was clear through Moses when Moses wrote. He says that the Lord did not set, uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor chose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath that which he swore to your fathers, again, that, that oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord has brought you out 
with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And then Moses goes on to say in chapter 10, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, God electing them had a therefore. Same thing with us as we'll see. But God electing them had a therefore. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. They were chosen. They were elected for a purpose. They were chosen for a reason. Election, according to the Old Testament, as we'll, and as we'll see in a moment, according to the New Testament, brings with it responsibilities, brings with it a, 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 an election for something. God did not simply choose you uh, to, to go to heaven. God chose you to be, and I'll go there now, to, although he was, was thinking of doing it in a, in a moment, God chose you to live holy and blameless lives. These are not my words. These are the words of Scripture, Paul, in Ephesians 1. And if your election is anything true, and if you are not living it that holy and blameless life, therefore, God will chastise you. God will discipline you because God will not have spoiled children. That's what God says here to the Israelites. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. They had the wrong view of God. They thought that they could do whatever they wanted. They had this northern kingdom theology that they could uh, abuse uh, the, uh, and live uh, like the nations lived. They had this view that they could uh, worship the, the idols that they wanted like their fathers did. They had this wrong view of God. God then comes and punishes them for their iniquities, for their wickedness. In fact, as you look through the book of Amos, you realize that all of these instances of uh, iniquities, of transgressions that, that, that are mentioned uh, by the prophet Amos, they're not being punished necessarily for those particular uh, um, iniquities or transgressions. They are, in a sense, but they're actually being punished because they have forgotten the ethics of their election, the purpose of their election. Those things are just outward demonstrations that they had abandoned their God. They are mentioned there as, as witnesses against their unrighteous behavior in abandoning God's holy law. These sins that are mentioned are the result of deviating from the purpose of their election. They misunderstood, they misinterpreted, sometimes they distorted God's purpose for which they were predestined. And now they understand as well, through the prophecy of Amos, that just because they were privileged to be chosen in that way doesn't give them a free pass. Because God will punish wickedness and he will visit them. That's, that's the meaning there of punish. Uh, therefore, I will punish you. Literally in the Hebrew means, therefore, I will visit you for all your iniquities. I will come to you for all your iniquities. No one wants that kind of visit. But that's what God is saying. And the punishment for them will be 
ironic, to say the least, because the land that they were given in, the, in, in their redemption from the house of bondage is now going to be taken away from them, and they're going, it's going to be given back to those that God had expelled. But the same thing is true of us today, brothers and sisters. The same thing is true of us today. God does not tolerate sin. God does not simply turn a blind eye to sin in our lives. God is a holy, thrice holy God, righteous and perfect in every single aspect. And he has called us to live holy and blameless lives. And if we don't, if we misinterpret, misunderstand, if we twist God's word to fit our own liking, God will visit us. Not with judgment in the sense that if we are his, we're no longer under judgment. Christ took that judgment. But make no mistake, there is pain. There is consequences for sin. God says in his word time and time again, from the beginning to the end, that sin amongst his people in particular is intolerable to him. Again, this is not just Old Testament. Some of you might protest, oh, you're, you're, you're bringing this Old Testament theology into the New Testament. The New Testament is all about grace. It is, but the Old Testament is all about grace as well. And the New Testament has exactly this, it puts exactly the same requirement on us as it did in the Old Testament. Our Lord said, be, there, be, you holy, be holy just as your Father in heaven is holy. Is that not a high standard? Is that God uh, loosening up a little bit in the New Testament? No, it's exactly the same. We are called to live holy and blameless lives. That's why the Lord elected us. And yes, you might say, oh, but now we have the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. We no longer have to have our own righteousness. Neither did they. You missed the point. Neither did they have to have their own righteousness. It was, always about the, it was always about the righteousness of Christ. Our understanding of the righteousness of Christ is not to loosen us from, from obedience to the law. Our understanding of the righteousness of Christ, the fact that he was obedient perfectly to the law, and, that, and now we're robed in his righteousness, is not to loosen our standards, but it's to release us from the, the, the penalty of breaking the law and sin that violates our consciences. Having the righteousness of God in us should propel us, therefore, to be more obedient. Not to be spiritually complacent. That was the problem then. That was the problem in the New Testament age, as Paul addressed it in many of his letters. That is the problem today. Some people confuse election with, with a, a license to sin, as if God is not as... Uh, strict about righteousness today as he was back in the Old Testament days. That is, was a disease that was rampant in Amos' day in the northern kingdom and is rampant today in our own day. You hear people talk like this. I know I'm not speaking out of turn here. You hear people speaking, oh, I prayed a prayer one day and now I'm good enough. 
Now everything is fine because I pray the prayer. Sometimes you hear people justifying themselves in, in other ways. You hear a, a, a young man or a married man who was in a, a terrible marriage, uh, according to him, say, oh, I met this woman in my workplace. You think Christians don't speak like this? <laughs> You're in for a shock. Start speaking with it. I met this woman in my workplace, and, and she's just so lovely. You know what? God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? I'm just going to... This marriage, marriage is terrible. God wants me to be happy. Or that young woman, Christian young woman that uh, is in a relationship with her boyfriend and they cannot get married, but, but they want to have sexual relationships and they justify themselves, oh, God, God wants me to be happy. We're going to get married eventually, so that's fine. It's not a sin, is it? God is loving. God's love is so great. That's spiritual complacency that we hear in our own day. And we need to be reminded that God, the God of Amos, is the God of the New Testament. The God of the prophets in the Old Testament, the holy, thrice holy God that hates sin and sinners, is the same God in the New Testament. The proof that he hates sin just as much as that his son took the penalty of sin on our behalf. Therefore, for his people, that should be a, a terrible warning. Because with, much, with great privilege comes great responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. Now, God is not speaking here, just like he was not speaking then, but he's not speaking to us that he will annul our, 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 the covenant that he made with us, just like he wasn't saying that he was going to annul the covenant he made with Abraham because of the Israelites. But what he's saying then and what he's saying to us now is that if you break the covenant, if you live in a way uh, that disregards the election that God has given, him, uh, given you, that makes no case about the way that uh, the reason for which God has called you, you will lose, lose the blessings, the privileges. You will lose the joy. That was true then. That is true now. If you are genuinely in Christ this evening and yet you live an unrepentant sin, I'm not surprised if, it, if because of that you are living uh, in a joyless way. You're like the, the Christian in, the, in Pilgrim's Progress. You know the Pilgrim's Progress. I'm sure you've read it. Christian, at some point, after he goes through a, a, a particular period of great blessedness, with hopeful by his side, they then come to the bypass meadow. You know bypass meadow? That place where he starts to be so self-assured and to live according to his own uh, preconceptions. Christian became so sure of himself, he gained so much self-confidence that he found himself in bypass meadow. A terrible place to be, as he found out. He was enticed by the hope of having an easier way. And then he found out that there was no joy there. Sometimes we find ourselves too easily in bypass meadow as well. We want to loosen the demands that God makes on our lives. We, want, we wander away. The Bible becomes a dry book for us. We no longer like to listen to it. Fellowship is something that we don't want. 
we become bitter. What happens is clear. You've lost the blessings. As the old Puritans used to say, although you do not lose your union with Christ, sin will, so, will mar your communion with him in such a way that you lose all joy in salvation. You cannot destroy the union. We believe in the perseverance of the saints, but then you lose all your communion. And that is right. And that's the way that the, God, that the Lord punishes us and chastises us to spur us up to consider our ways. That's not Old Testament like. That is the New Testament. The, our Lord Jesus said this quite clearly in the, in the New Testament when he speaks of himself as the vine. He says, I'm the vine. I'm the true vine. And my father is the gardener. Every branch that bears no fruit, what happens to it? Gets cut off, thrown away. Sometimes we feel cut off. For some of us, that might be a, a, a well-needed wake-up call. And we, we, we repent of our sins and we come back to Christ and we receive forgiveness. And then we, become, we, we start bearing fruit again. For, some other, for, other, for others, that's just what it really was. They were not a true branch. They were not really ever connected to the, to the true vine. The point that God does this in Amos and the point that God does this in our day is to purge out those who are fake. There's a lot of talk about fake news and fake this and fake that these days, but that is the reality. There are goats amongst the sheep. There are uh, wheat among the chaff, and ultimately that, will only, that separation only happens in the judgment day. But in, Lord's good, in the Lord's goodness, sometimes he sends punished to clean up even in our day. That's what's happening here. So a few points of application as I finish. There are a few points of, a few lessons here. And I'll be quick. The first lesson for us as we consider this passage is that just because we are elected, just because we are predestined, just because we have been given this Great salvation, so great a salvation, doesn't mean that we can neglect it, that we can do little of it, or that we have a license to sin. That was the problem of, the, of them, the Israelites in the northern kingdom. That was their theology back then. It is the problem today. It is the theology that is pervading in our generation. And there I say in our uh, context, and Amos contradicts this theology. He says that God has chosen the people according to the purpose of his election, to fulfill the purpose of his election, to be a holy people, to be a, a holy priesthood, to represent God to the world. That's, that's what the Israelites were called to do. They were the smallest nation because they were to be a priesthood, a nation of priests. They were to be a representation of God's kindness and love and the representation of God's holiness and justice to the seen nations around them. And yet they were failing to do so. And because they were, judgment or punishment was coming. A second lesson for us is that God does punish us today. Not in a judgment kind of way, but if we are his, the Lord chastises us. 
in our sins. Make no mistake. That's what the Lord does because he loves us. This was the way that the, the kingdom of the north was mistaken. They thought that they could. But what God is saying through Amos to us today is I have chosen you, therefore I will punish you for all your wickedness. Election brings the, with it the danger that we may experience God's displeasure. And the question is, are you experiencing it now? Why? Consider your ways. Another one, be super brief here because I don't think I need to do much exposition in this or to, uh, to expand on it here, is that election does not do away with human responsibility. They were elected, they were chosen, and there's something to be said, but I won't go into it about they were chosen as a nation, not as individuals. But then there was a remnant that it was chosen as individual, but we, were, we won't go there. But the reality is that not the, their election did not do away with their responsibility. They were still responsible for their sins. And God clearly states this regarding us. We are, we are sovereignly elected, but we are still responsible for our sins. We are sovereignly elected, but we are still called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in us, both to do and to will, but we are still called to do so. We're called to do so by Peter in, 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 in a 2 Peter chapter 1. Brethren, be diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never stumble. We are still responsible acting agents the final lesson is that the election does not guarantee us a privileged status when it comes to the consequences of sin yes Christ takes our judgment yes God takes our uh, Christ takes the the penalty of our sin but in this life, we may still incur, incur God's uh, discipline to sanctify us, and we do. So for us, brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, the application is quite clear. Make your call in election sure. Don't feel secured in your, in your election if you're living in sin. You cannot, in fact, feel uh, secure in your election if you're living in unrepented sin. Nowhere in scripture is that assurance given to you. Assurance of salvation is only for those who are walking, not just in union, but in communion with God. And sin can be so anesthetic to us. Sin can, can totally make us feel like, uh, like everything is fine. A false sense of peace and security. Drawing the peace and security from the place where you shouldn't draw it. If you're living in sin, you have no reason. If you're living in unrepentant sin, open uh, uh, unrepentant sin, if you know this, you have no reason to feel secure or assured of your salvation. Assurance comes from having a proper communion with God. From knowing that we're to the best of our ability, as the Lord gives us strength 
and capacity. We are living holy and blameless lives before him in love. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. And if you are wrongly assured, the message is clear as well. There is an opportunity. The prophets always came before judgment to spur on the, the remnant to obedience, to stir them up to consider their ways. Just like in the days of Amos, although there is no offer of salvation, the point is clear. Judgment is coming. Punishment is coming. Repent and believe. For the day is coming. For the kingdom of God is at hand. For us, the same message is being proclaimed. There is a gracious and loving Savior with arms open wide that will never cast off those who approach him with contrite hearts. Amos' message was clear then. It is the same message that is preached to us today. The same message that he stood upon the squares of Samaria preaching is the same message that he preaches for us today. There is an opportunity. There is a time. You can repent. The lion has roared, but he has not yet pounced upon the sinners. But we, that is the message that we receive. It is the message for you. It is the message for me. It is the message for all of God's people. You will stand before God's tr throne of judgment one day in eternity. And you will have to answer for how you have replied to the message of this exhortation. And if you're living in unrepentant sin and you still excuse yourself like I'm sure so many of the Israelites in Amos did, they did. This guy, how is he saying that judgment is coming when everything is looking so perfect? We have houses, of winter houses. We have summer houses. We have houses of ivory. And he's here telling us that judgment is coming. Can you not see that the Lord has blessed us with all of these riches? And they excuse themselves. But there will come a day if you don't listen to these words of exhortation. In the same way that I will have to answer for the words that I say. You will have to answer for the way that you have uh, replied, responded to, those to that message. For you have heard the call of repentance, all of you. Believers and unbelievers alike. And in me... And others here will have to testify that, yes, indeed, you heard the call to repentance. That, yes, indeed, you heard and responded to it with a stiff neck, with a hardened heart. And great will be your punishment. Make no mistake. These words are unpalatable to us in our day, but they are nonetheless representation correct display of who God truly is and there's the word that we need to hear these in our day because we too live in a day where the church has become complacent to its sin has become lethargic and I'll finish with the words of Peter therefore brethren be even more diligent to make your call and election sure for if you, were, if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God convince us of this.
May God comfort us with it. May God take away any false security that you or I have, any carnal trust in our own uh, self and actions that we sometimes have as well. May he deliver us from a life of hypocrisy and of complacence, of sin, and distance from him. All the while we still have the, the audacity of putting his name in our mouths and calling ourselves Christian. May the Lord protect us from this. Let's pray. Gracious God, Lord, we are all prone to wonder. We are all prone to leave the God we love. Oh Lord, we profess to love you. But even then, Lord, we remember the words of our Lord. If you love me, you would keep my commandments. Oh Lord, we know that we have not kept your commandments. Whether by ignorance, by lack of wisdom, or even perhaps most scarily, by our own sinful devices, we have reinterpreted it that we could get our, away with our own ways. O Lord, be merciful on us. Bring your word to bear upon our hearts this evening, throughout this night, Lord, throughout this week, that indeed we may live lives that are more pleasing in your sight, that indeed we may be made in the image and uh, conform to the image of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in every way. Pray, Lord, that you would make us to be more mature in the faith to be more obedient to your word, to have a correct perspective of who you are and what you have done and what you have called us to be. Help us, therefore, Lord, to live worthy of the high calling with which you called us, to live according to the ethic of your election upon our lives. We may not, Lord, be fooled by our own devices. Be gracious to us, Lord. We pray these things 